Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our family has always played a lot of games together. And one that we crack out occasionally is called Wits and Wagers. Maybe you've played this too. It's, it's pretty simple. There are trivia questions about all kinds of things and everyone writes down their answers. There are questions like this. How much did the most expensive ticket cost on the Titanic in 1912? Answer, $4,350 in case you're wondering. Or what's the largest number of different words spoken by one bird? The answer is 148 by Oscar the Parakeet in 2010. So anyways, you write down your answers, what you think the answer is, and then everybody puts them in the middle and you place bets, not with real money, but you place bets on which ones are right. So it's wits and wagers. Now, the reason this game is so fun is because it makes you think about things that you haven't thought of before. And that's what good questions do. Questions make us think more than just simple declarative statements do. That's part of how God has made our brains. So it's no surprise that great teaching has always been based on questions as well. This is what the great philosophers like Socrates did, for example. He asked questions that made people think about something in a way that they had not thought of before. Now today, We call that cognitive dissonance, that mental agitation or disturbance that that longs for resolution. We feel it in our bodies when it's going on in our brains. And cognitive dissonance is caused by stimulating questions, and it's where learning and growth always occurs. You can't really grow or learn unless you experience some kind of cognitive dissonance. Because it's when we're forced to explore, to wonder, that we come to see things in a way that we haven't seen them before. So great teachers in all traditions have asked provocative questions and have provided answers. Well, today we're finishing up a big section in Matthew covering from 22, chapter 22, verses 23 to 46. And it's really a showdown. It's a duel in the streets like a Western between the official Jewish leaders of of Judaism and Jesus, the great teacher. And the, the showdown all hangs on questions. If you've been following along with our sermons in Matthew so far, you know that we've been seeing a lot of action and a lot of intense conflict as Jesus has entered Jerusalem for what is going to turn out to be his last week of earthly ministry. It's a week that's going to end with his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection. We'll, we'll pick up the rest of the Gospel of Matthew in January. But this last section that we're looking at before Advent continues the same theme of back and forth debate between Jesus and the religious leaders, all standing in the shadow of the great temple right in Jerusalem. And last week, we saw that the Pharisees came to trap Jesus with the perfect question, the question about whether we should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And they thought they had him but he turned out to be wiser and more wonderful and powerful than anyone expected. And we're going to see in our text for today, two more attempts to entrap Jesus with difficult questions, both of which, in case you're wondering, he answers brilliantly, ruined the suspense there for you. But then we're going to see a final scene where he turns the tables and asks them a question. So our our story has three parts. Let's jump right in to the first part, the Sadducees question. 
In the previous question that the Pharisees had asked, the conservative religious leaders, the Pharisees, they weren't the power players in the Jewish hierarchy politically, but they had widespread popular influence. Most Jewish people in Jesus' day wanted to obey Torah, and the Pharisees were the educated and pious people who provided guidance on how to do that. And we saw again that they came and tried to trap Jesus with a political question because he was really threatening to them. But now, a totally different group than the Pharisees come up and try to challenge this upstart Jesus, and they are called the Sadducees. Let's look at our story. That same day, verse 23 says, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married? It's quite a, quite a little scene here. So the Sadducees, again, a very different group than the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the elite they were the priestly aristocrats in Jerusalem, the minority of people who really had all the power. They were wealthy. They were connected to the Roman Empire. They were progressives, or we might even say liberals theologically. Most of the priests in Jerusalem came from this elite, this small class of elite families who kind of controlled all the money and all the power in Jerusalem. And these, they probably dominated the Sanhedrin, the official council, because of all their influence and political power. Now, we know about the Sadducees. We see Matthew tells us something about them. Acts, the, the scholar and Jewish scholar Josephus tells us something about them as well. We know that they were uh, very different theologically than the Pharisees. They were reductionistic, we might say. They were very polished. They were, they were, as many scholars have noted, probably a lot like maybe liberal elites today in Ivy League schools or something. They have a very limited but strongly held but limited view of morality. They're very skeptical of the supernatural. They didn't believe in active spiritual beings like angels. And we're told explicitly multiple times that they did not believe in a future life after death. They did not believe in a resurrection age. And that's what that reference, when they say in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? That, that isn't referring just to the moment of resurrection, but that refers to this wide-held Jewish belief in an age, the resurrection age, the time that many Jews, like the Pharisees and probably most Jews believed, would come when, when the Messiah would return, usher in a new era, establish his kingdom on the earth, and people would be raised from the dead and live together in God's kingdom. Now, the Sadducees thought this whole idea of a resurrection age was stupid and absurd. Show me that in the Pentateuch, they would say. And in, in, in their reading of Moses, for example, there's not really any life after death. Death is just the shadowy existence of Sheol. And the only hope you had for life after death was in your name, having a good name and the posterity of your children and grandchildren. So you can see that their question is as far from sincere as could be. You can hear the polished tone of their mockery. They call Jesus teacher, which they don't believe he is at all, and then they ask him a question that is meant to simultaneously discredit him as a theological hick and also to score some points against the Pharisees, the more dominant, even though not as powerful, but the more influential Pharisees who also believed in a resurrection age. 
So to, to do this simultaneously, to attack Jesus and to make fun of the Pharisees, they come up with this crazy situation based on an obscure law that's been called the Leverite law. That's what we call it later from the Latin word for levir, which means brother-in-law. So this was a very ancient law, as you saw there in the text, that talked about that if, if one person died, one man died, that for the sake of the posterity of his family, he had to marry uh, his former sister-in-law to continue on the family line. Well, this is an ancient law that you do find reference to in the Old Testament, but we don't really see almost any reference to it ever being practiced, maybe very roughly. And even in Jesus' day, there didn't seem to be a lot of people that actually practiced this. But for those who believe in a resurrection age, this question of marriage in the resurrection age, that is a real one. Because so many people have been married more than once, even more in the ancient world. You think about with very high mortality rates, especially childbirth mortality rates, a lot of people were married more than once. So if you were a faithful believer and you believed in a resurrection age, that was a real dilemma. Who am I going to be married to in this resurrection age? So the Sadducees know this. It's like a cultural trope for them. And so they make up a scenario, not just with two husbands, which would be if you wanted to ask the real theological question, but they make up this absurd mocking question of seven husbands. They don't believe any of this at all. They're just trying to make fun of the Pharisees and Jesus. So what's Jesus' answer? We'll look at verse 29. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So there are two parts to Jesus' answer here. There, he answers their mockery directly and seriously, and he affirms that there is a resurrection age, even though it's not what we might think it is. What Jesus says about marriage here, not being given in marriage, has often troubled many people, maybe especially if you're happily married, maybe not if you're not as happily married, but it's troubled many people to ask, what, what is marriage? Is there going to be marriage in the new creation? And it seems like he's saying not there, there he is saying there isn't. Now, it's important to understand what Jesus is saying. He is not anti-marriage, but he's emphasizing that the reality in the resurrection age, the new creation, the kingdom of heaven come to earth, is not just an extrapolation of life as we know it now. It's not just a, a longer and better version of the life we know, know now. But Jesus is saying that the new age, the resurrection age, is a transformed time, is an age and an existence unlike what we currently know. In the resurrection age, Jesus says, we will have glorified and redeemed bodies. We'll have an existence that is different than what we can know now. But note what this does not mean and note what Jesus is not saying. that we He's not saying that we won't know each other. He's not saying there won't be familiarity and affection and love. But he is teaching us that marriage and sexual relationships are part of the earthly created order, not the new creation where there'll be no procreation. I love how the scholar R.T. France describes it. He says, what Jesus declares to be inappropriate in heaven is marriage, not love. So perhaps heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage, but something more. That's a great way of saying it. There's, there's no marriage, Jesus says, in the, in the new creation, but there is still love and relationships because that is how God has made us. 
Now, in the second part of Jesus' answer to the Sadducees, he goes straight to the Pentateuch, to the teachings of Moses, to show them that their skepticism and mockery is wrong because even Moses affirms the resurrection age, according to Jesus. How? Well, he's saying that God makes eternal covenants with his people. His relationship with us, his people, is stronger than death. We are more than just memories to God. So Jesus can say that people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be alive, not dead, in the resurrection age. Now, were the Sadducees convinced by what Jesus says here? Probably not. But verse 33 shows that the crowds were once again amazed and astonished at Jesus' wisdom and, his, and that he's not afraid to reason with these snooty Sadducees. And then we get to round three of the questions. We saw the last first one last week, second one just now, and here's round three. Now the Pharisees, the ones who started this whole thing and who are trying to get rid of Jesus, now they are in a real dilemma because he answered them brilliantly on the Caesar tax question. The crowds were amazed. Now he has answered the Sadducees. The crowds are amazed again. This is not going as they had hoped. Quite the opposite. Jesus is proving to be wiser and more skilled than anyone could have imagined. And these losers out in the crowd might actually think that Jesus is the Messiah. So they gather together once more to try to figure out a question that will really stump him. And now look at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him or tempted him even with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay, so first we had the question about taxes, then the question about the resurrection age. Now we have this commandment about God's law and which commandment is the greatest? They're still trying to trap him. They're, this is not a sincere question. They're still trying to discredit him. But this is a little bit more serious theological question than the other two. In fact, this was a question, what's the greatest commandment of the law, that rabbis debated all the time and one that could be used to show how educated in the scriptures someone really was. It was a good litmus test for someone's knowledge of the Bible. Because, after all, there are a lot of things in the Jewish scriptures. The rabbis calculated that there are 613 different commandments in the law, plus all the other things that are taught in the prophets and the stories of the Old Testament. That is a lot of stuff to know and a lot of stuff to sort out. The rabbis regularly asserted that, that some things were heavier and lighter, and they, they debated which things were heavier and lighter, recognizing that life is very complex. And to, and to figure out what the right thing to do, you have to know a lot and you have to square all of God's commandments and teachings together. And that's not easy to do. It's like the law and courts today. Is it okay to protect yourself, to harm someone else, to protect yourself or to protect someone else or to protect your dog? Or is it okay to harm someone if you think they might do something wrong, but you're not 100% sure? Or in the ancient world, they had situations like this. Was it okay to do work on the Sabbath? Well, God said no, but what if it meant protecting yourself or protecting someone else? Or what if it's in a war and you're and Jerusalem's being attacked and you take up arms on the Sabbath or not? There are always going to be these legal dilemmas, and that's why we have judges and lawyers and juries. And so too, with the huge and complex biblical teachings, there is a real dilemma of all the things God has said. And he said a lot of stuff. What is the weightiest? What's the most important? Now, the rabbis had lots of answers to that. 
They had a lot of different answers to that. Some people said, if you go to Psalm 15, you can see the, the 11 principles that God lays out as the weightiest. Some people said that you could go to Micah 6, 8 and find three ideas there. Some people said you could go to Proverbs 3, 6, and there were lots of other places you could go as well. And I think if we went out into the world and asked people more generally, what's the greatest commandment of life? What's the life's most important principle? I think we get lots of answers like, be true to yourself or moderation in all things or wag more, bark less, as you may have seen that great bumper sticker, or don't spend your life preparing for your life or attitude determines altitude or the key to life is sincerity. And once you can fake that, you're good to go. And we could come up with all kinds of different ones that people might say, this is the key to life. But if we want to get direction from God, if we want to take the Bible as the most important wisdom, what is the most important thing the Bible says? What would you say? I think if we brainstorm together, we might come up with several possible answers like be holy as God is holy or always do what's right or fear God or don't treat, drink or chew or run with girls who do or be obedient or glorify God. And even though the Pharisees meant this question to entrap and discredit Jesus, it's actually a really good question. What is the most important teaching of the Bible? Well, what's Jesus' answer? Look at it in verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now we may be so familiar with this answer that it doesn't strike us as that profound, but this is an amazing answer. This is a shockingly powerful answer and one that has forever changed the course of human history. Jesus starts with the Shema, the central tenet of Jewish and Christian faith from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, that every Jewish person would recite twice a day, that every Jewish person who was faithful would have written on their door frames, and they would have little scraps of paper on it that they would strap on various parts of their body, their head and their arms. If they were allowed to have tattoos, which they weren't, for sure, this would have been a very popular tat, complete with misspelled Hebrew, no regrets. And what's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus says, you want to know what the greatest commandment of the whole Bible is? It's right there and already in what you say every day. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, different translations, different parts of the Bible use different terms there, heart, soul, mind, strength, etc. The point of that is not to sort of separate those up because you really can't separate the body up in that simple of a way. Instead, these are all images together mean your whole person, everything about you, every part of you, every aspect of you should be dedicated to loving God wholly without reservation. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He was asked for one answer, but he gives another one, not a different one. He says it's like it, meaning it's of the same idea, even of the same essence, that we must, he says, love our neighbor as ourselves, quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. Again, this is amazing. Jesus says that of all the things God has said, the whole law and the prophets can rightly be summarized up and articulated in one crucial principle, one overarching idea, love. 
Now, this doesn't mean that all other ethical commands and laws and guidance are out the window. Doesn't mean that love abolishes all the other things God says. Sorry, Beatles and the rest of hippie culture. To make society and func- to make society run and function, we do need something else besides love. We do need guidance. But it does mean that all of God's commands, all of God's desires for his people are driven by the principle of love and has and have love as their end goal. Love doesn't replace other guidance and commands, but it shows their purpose and guides their application. And then we get to the final part of our story. Jesus, the sages, stumper question. We'll come back in a few moments to press into what that love command means for us. But there's one more part to our story. Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Do you remember back how all of this long conversation that takes up Matthew 21 and 22, do you remember how it all got started? between Jesus and the religious leaders. This all started when the chief priests and elders elders challenged Jesus back in chapter 21, verse 23. They wanted to know from him by what authority he was doing all the things he was doing, teaching, healing, cleansing the temple. And if you recall, he played the role of the wise Riddler. He asked them a question about John the Baptist, a question that he knew that they would not answer sincerely because they were afraid of the crowds, that John was actually sent by God. And then that long heated conversation ensues after that first initial challenge. Jesus turned to them and gave them three parables that were all about sons and they were escalating parables with the image of Jesus as the son himself, the son of the king who had a wedding feast thrown by him that pe- thrown for him that people ignored. Then the religious leaders, knowing that Jesus had spoken these parables against him, they came to him with three stumper questions. They were trying to trap him. This is what we've been seeing. But every time he showed himself to be more wise and sincere than them. And then now we come to these final verses I just read. This is the seventh story in the series. That's not an accident. And it is amazing. After these other six stories in the seventh story, Jesus turns to his accusers and he asks them a stumper question about sonship. So they've asked, he told, he talked about sonship. They ask questions. Then he turns to them and asks them a question about sonship. And using Psalm 110, Jesus asks his accusers a question about the Messiah, the expected son of David, who's going to come and bring God's kingdom upon the earth. They rightly affirm when he asks them that Messiah, that the Messiah is the son of David, a descendant of David. But then Jesus asks them the truest stumper of a theological question. If the Messiah is a descendant of David, a son of David, how can David call him Lord? Because a, a son is never greater than a father. So who is David referring to, Jesus asks, when he acknowledges 
that the Lord God told the Messiah to sit at his right hand and that David looks up to that Messiah as the Lord as well. The Lord said to my Lord. So David calls someone else above him Lord that, the, that God himself calls Lord and, and says, sit at my right hand. The fact that David calls his own descendant Lord, that his own Messiah is the Lord, must mean that the Messiah is more than a son of David. He is the son of David. He must be someone greater than David. And this is incredibly important because Jesus' argument is not that the title son of David that people are giving him, that he takes for himself, he's not saying that's wrong, but it's inadequate. Yes, Jesus is David's son, but he's more than David's son. He's also his Lord and the Lord. So who is Jesus? He's a son of David, but even more, he is the son of God himself. The Messiah turns out to be more than a promised descendant of David, but God himself incarnate, exactly what Matthew's been showing us all along. And this then, you see, is the answer to the question when the leaders challenged Jesus way back in chapter 21. By whose authority are you doing these things? They say to Jesus, the ultimate answer is by his own authority as the son of God granted to him as the Lord of the universe. And then Matthew concludes all of this long conversation with verse 46, showing Jesus' wisdom and victory over all his accusers. Verse 46 says, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so what? So what do we do with all of this and how does it really impact our lives? Well, I started by talking about how disruptive questions are actually helpful for us. Good and challenging questions crack open our hearts and minds so that we, be, we can begin to see things differently by seeing differently, live differently. And I want to point out for us today that the last two parts of our story provide us with, I think, two of the most helpful and disruptive questions that can really impact our lives if we will listen to them. They are, first of all, the most important question we can ask of God, what do you want of us? And secondly, the most important question Jesus asks us, who do you think I am? Let me say something briefly about both of these. First, the most important question we can ask God, what do you want of us? Of all the things Jesus could have said to sum up God's commands and his desires for his people, he gave what we call the double love commandment, wholehearted love for God and wholehearted love for others. And we need to let that sink in. This beautiful answer is extremely challenging for every one of us because you see, it's so easy, maybe especially for conservative believers, to those who, to, to, to lose love, even in the midst of that, to lose love as the central focus and organizing principle of what we do. In fact, I'm gonna maybe step on some toes here a little bit and say that, that Jesus' double love principle is often not what marks many of our institutions and churches, even the most orthodox and conservative ones. We often replace love with something else. 
like conservatism or orthodox doctrine or defense of the truth or defense of the old ways or even the glory of God. Good things all, but not, according to Jesus, the driving and organizing principle of all that God has commanded of us, according to Jesus, the double love. In fact, I think we do that because we're scared of putting too much emphasis on love. We're scared to put it on our banners and our mission statements because we're afraid that it sounds too wishy-washy and we're afraid that it will give license to, to bad people to do bad stuff. Sounds a lot like how the Pharisees argued. And it sounds the opposite of how Jesus himself operated. Jesus knew and practiced that it is love and grace and mercy and compassion that changes people's lives, not commands and narrowness. Duty crushes, beauty woos. Fearful conservatism stifles, love transforms. Now, now we can object and say, but, but what about all the other things Jesus says? I agree. As I said before, we do need guidance and rules in orthodoxy. Love doesn't wipe out rules. It doesn't wipe out morality. But whatever else is true of us, the double love must be at the core of all that we do and the end goal of all that we do. And so it needs to be central in our language and central in the way we talk and think according to Jesus. And notice also that it's so important that Jesus didn't just say, love God. I mean, that's true, but it's not sufficient according to Jesus. He added the second organic part of this, loving God as, or loving others as well. And this is so powerful and it so powerfully holds together what every one of us tends to put asunder. You see, different people gravitate toward one side or the other, but we all tend to miss the double love. Some of us emphasize love and obedience to God, and we minimize love for others in practice. Some emphasize love for others, and we minimize love for God in practice. This is the human way to fall off one side of the knife edge or the other. But we've got to let Jesus' double love sink into our hearts and minds. It's so wise, so balanced, so perfect. In our circles, mostly, I think we tend to fall off the side of loving God and not always loving others. Although, personally, I think our church is exceptionally balanced on this, but it's still a good reminder for us. But I think here especially of what the Gospel of John teaches us, what Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse, that the mark, the mark of how the world will know that we are Jesus' followers is not our stand on social issues, our orthodox doctrine, all good things or any other things. But the telling mark that we are followers of Jesus is how we love. And that is challenging. Just recently, I was speaking to a student who has come to the seminary. Some of his other friends went, to, went down a different route of education, and he's very anxious about them, very concerned about them becoming liberals and, and wanted to figure out how to argue them back into the truth. And I said, that's great. You should certainly you know, try to speak with them and, and show them more, better ways to think about the Bible, et cetera. But what I challenged him with and what I'll challenge you with as well is no matter what else you do in your interaction with your friends, make sure that they walk away saying, that person is a man of love. Because it doesn't matter if you win all the arguments and that's not what marks you. In that way, we're not following Jesus if that's true of us. I think also of how 
the Apostle John held together Jesus' double love in this organic way by saying this. Look at these verses in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. <laughs> Those are very powerful words that you can't say that you love God if you don't like people. Don't be like Karl Marx, who reportedly loved the working class, but actually couldn't stand working class people. <laughs> so friends, as we head into Thanksgiving and Christmas with nerves frayed and children stressing us out and annoyances maybe with family members and old wounds being retorn between you and your spouse, remember that God says and wants of us for our good that whatever else is true of us, that we step towards love, love for him and love for others with a whole heart. Whatever else your piety looks like, giving money to people, you know, serving turkey at a homeless shelter, whatever it is, if it's not centered in and doesn't have the goal of love, it is less than what God is inviting us to. And then just a very brief word on the second thing, the second question. Jesus is asking us, in, this, in these stories, they think, what do, or who do we think he is? The most important question Jesus asks us, who do you think I am? This week ends the regular season of the church calendar and we begin Advent, this time where we focus on waiting for God to enter into the world and rescue us. And we are now in a season of incredible disarray and confusion, and disorientation, and fear, and uncertainty. We all have lots of questions. Will I lose my job? When will this pandemic end? When can my kids go back to school? Will a vaccine fix all of this? Those are all good and fair questions. But all of, all, all of these questions will come and go, and will turn out to be just a speck of dust compared to the question that Jesus asks us today, who do you think I am? Because if we get that answer right, everything else snaps into perspective. If we turn on the light by answering this question about Jesus rightly, then all the darkness and shadows scaring us will be seen properly. Jesus says, I am the son of David, the promised Messiah who is bringing God's kingdom to earth. And more, he says, I am the son of God who has entered the world with all its brokenness, all its confusions, all its fear, all its questions. And who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I'd invite you now to, if you have communion materials available, um, to partake of that, to remember what we're about to start celebrating with Advent as the musicians lead us. Blessings to you today. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.